0: I had a very strange childhood. Had the worst case any doctor had ever seen.
1: My job is to keep healing. So that is the story. We all have remarkable stories within us. Stories of adversity, challenges, triumphs, and ultimately of healing. This is Your Health, Your Story, the podcast. When the cause of ill health is a result of environmental toxins like mold, it changes your perspective and the responsibility to get well. Our guest today spent most of his early life suffering from toxic mold exposure. He's now an indoor air quality crusader and has reimagined mold testing. This is the story of Got Mold with Jason Earle. Jason, so happy for you to be here. So tell, good to be here. Tell us because you know it's your health, your story. You obviously have a story that led you to creating this company and being such a man on a mission. So could you start there because you had your whole own health problems that led you into this? Uh, what were they? What was your story?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for for having me on your show. Um, I've been looking forward to this. The mold industry, or I would say the the career path that led me to where I am, is not one that is essentially an academic track. Right? There's no, you know, there's lots of subspecialties, but this is a really multidisciplinary field. Because you have to really have a grasp of not only the biology of the body, but also the biology of the building, right? How buildings are built correctly, how they're built incorrectly, And so most of the people that are doing great work in this space come from a very personal experience. And so I'm, I'm no exception to that. So I initially became aware of this actually after a successful career on Wall Street. So a little bit late in the game by some measures, but I was still pretty young at the time. I had decided after uh, the dot com bubble burst I wanted to do something meaningful with my life, and so I threw twenty pounds of stuff in a backpack and I went traveling. And it was just after September 11th, so I tried to stay, you know, pretty close to home. But I ended up in Hawaii, which is not a bad place to end up for a while. And I was uh, had a lot of time on my hands, so I was reading local newspapers and magazines and stuff. Um, in fact, I was reading this one particular story uh, while I was in uh, in Oahu. In the shadow of the uh, the Kalia Hilton Tower, which at the time was shut down for a major mold problem, and I had I was completely unwitting to the historical significance of this particular uh, thing. It turned out it was the biggest mold problem in in history at the time. And uh, the one story that really popped out at me was, and by the way, the story was all over the news. It was it was not isolated to one magazine. It was it was it was big big news because it was Hilton's Kalia flagship building, Hilton's flagship building. In any case, the story that really jumped out at me was about a 40-year-old former employee of the hotel who had been otherwise healthy, but had developed adult onset asthma, as well as all of these allergies and sensitivities to things he'd never had a problem with before. And it was like a deja vu moment or or like a time machine. I was immediately brought back to my childhood where when I was about four years old, I suddenly lost a lot of weight in a three-week period, about 30% of my body weight, according to my parents. And uh, and I was having difficulty breathing, so they took me to the pediatrician who said, you know, you really need to take him to Children's Hospital. This looks serious. And so they did. And they took me to, uh, you know, CHOP, which is the world-renowned respiratory clinic um, in Philadelphia. And uh, based upon family history and the symptoms that I was presenting with, the initial diagnosis was cystic fibrosis. Which at the time was a death sentence, right? I'm 46, so that was a you know a very short life that I was looking towards. My parents were were devastated for obvious reasons, but my dad in particular because he had lost four of his cousins to CF before the age of 14. So this was their worst nightmare, you know, coming true. So they cried for six weeks, as uh, as they describe, and uh, while they waited for a second opinion, which fortunately contradicted the initial diagnosis. Actually, it turns out I didn't have CF. Don't have CF, but I did have asthma compounded by pneumonia. Which was my first big dose of antibiotics, by the way. Uh, so that's part of the part of the whole story. And I was also uh, subjected to this allergy testing, which was you know it's one of my formative memories. You know, they put you in a papoose or like a straitjacket for toddlers with an open back, and then draw a grid on your back, and then expose you to all these antigens and all these allergens. And so, so I, my dad said, look like a ladybug just a big red swollen back with dots all over it. And uh, I essentially tested positive for every single thing that they tested me for. So, you know, in summary, grass, wheat, corn, eggs, dogs, cats, cotton. So my clothes were itchy, soybeans. And I grew up on a little non-working farm, a hobby farm where I was surrounded by all those things in great abundance. And, and literally with soybean fields to the right, corn fields across the street, you know, and and dogs and cats everywhere. And my parents had a very unique uh, a concept around hygiene. So needless to say, they accumulated. And so, and both of them smoked indoors, uh, as well as in the car with an asthmatic kid, because, you know, that's what you did in the 70s and the 80s. You know, these days, children, uh, I'm sure child services would have had something to say about that, but that was the de facto standard. So, and, and it wasn't for lack of love, it was just a lack of awareness. And so, but the bottom line is I lived like that until I was about 12, at which point my folks split up and I moved out of that, that uh, very damp house. And uh, all my symptoms went away, as did my grandfathers, by the way. Uh, They call it spontaneous adolescent remission um, instead of looking at what might have actually been a root cause. Shortly thereafter, my mother uh, passed away suddenly, she uh, committed suicide, actually, which is relevant, believe it or not, to, to the mole story. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a year later, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, where I got my next big, you know, face full of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And that was that was potent because that was before they ever really had a, an established regimen. So it was very experimental. And so it was like 30 pills of biaxin and stuff like that per day for three days. And then it was off for three days, this pulse therapy thing that they were doing. And then I ended up uh, dropping out of high school, long story short, and, and got actually working full time in a gas station where I met a guy who recruited me to come work on Wall Street, which is a, a story for another podcast, I think. But in any case, uh, the, the, the story in Hawaii was this transporting thing where I immediately became fascinated with the concept because I called my father from a payphone and said, hey, do you think we had a mold problem at Old Trenton Road? and not knowing anything about mold, right? I was a stockbroker in a, and read this article. That was the totality of my knowledge about mold. And he goes, of course. We have mushrooms in the basement. Why do you ask? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, typical of my body. So flippant about these things. And I said, so do you think Do you think that uh, was you know part of the reason why I was sick? And he goes, couldn't have helped. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it was... <laughs> yeah, no, and so it was, it was literally from that moment on, I had the kind of like this epiphany or this light bulb moment where all the pieces of the puzzle kind of, you know, became clear to me, which was that I became fascinated with not mold per se, although it's fascinating and the more I know about it, the more fascinating it is, actually the impact of buildings, the buildings that we live and work in on our health. And this is a blind spot in the world it's a blind spot certainly in the medical community but unfortunately it's also a blind spot with the people who live in these buildings the people that you know because you know it reminds me of the this the uh commencement address by david foster wallace i don't know if you've ever seen this but he talks about he, this is water and he and he talks about the two fish swimming along two little fish young fish rather and they're swimming along their their business and the older fish passes them by and says good morning boys how's the water and they go fine look at each other a couple minutes later and like what the hell's water, you know? <laughs> and that's what we are. We're like fish in the water that we call air. And uh, and it is anything but empty space. It is in fact the, the, the blind spot of all blind spots, you know? So I became fascinated with that. I came back to New Jersey armed with curiosity uh, and some time on my hands. I was looking for a new career anyway. And I took a job working for a mold remediation contractor. Actually, it was a basement waterproofing contractor that was doing mold treatments because there was no such thing as mold remediation or standards or best practices or even government guidance for that matter at the time. And these guys were doing everything wrong. Uh, and I knew that intuitively. They were using a lot of chemicals and they were ripping stuff out without proper controls. And, and so I, I quickly saw that there was an opportunity here to protect the consumer. So I started an inspection company at night. I was basically doing free inspections until somebody started saying, you know, I should really pay you for this. And then I heard about a guy trained mold sniffing dogs uh, who trained mold sniffing dogs and thought that was just crazy enough to be brilliant and got one of those. And, and that began a cascade of press... Uh, you know, it became a, a, Channel 6 Action News thought they were going to debunk us by hiding mold in the house. And instead they endorsed us because we found it in like three minutes. And then we got involved, a bunch of doctors started referring patients to us. And then we, that, some of those patients, uh, their healing became, it was so profound that it became Good Morning America episodes. And then it, Extreme Makeup Home Edition and on and on and on. And that company became 1-800-GOT-MOLD, our mold inspection business. And then over the years, quickly uh, to, so where I am right now. Is that we uh, over the years it was difficult for me to stomach the fact that most of the people who needed mold inspections needed mold testing couldn't afford it, including my own parents. Right, so to bring this full circle, to actually really build something that could that would have solved the problem that my parents went through, I had to come up with an affordable solution. Uh, and so it took years to develop, but we launched last March uh, the Got Mold Test Kit, uh, which is the first and well, it's the most affordable, reliable, scientifically valid do-it-yourself test kit on the market and so it's been a, it's been a long road you know it's been 20 years i've been doing this learning every single day because this is just a it's a it's an area where there's tremendous research emerging and there's also it's just riddled with myths and misconceptions and all of these wives tales and all of these things that the average consumer even the average physician is so mired in that you know it feels like almost every interaction is an education uh, session you know and and that's okay that's what i signed up for But at the end of the day, you know, this has been an accidental, I'm an accidental expert, right? It was one of those things where, you know, it's just the way sometimes life gives you a path and you follow it. And next thing you know, you're, you know, where I sit right here, you know? Yeah. I find accidental experts to be the most
1: proficient ones. (laughs) You know, they don't have the ego that goes with, I've been doing this my whole life. It's more of a, I went through this and had to for my own life become an expert and do it for a benevolent way, of course, for yourself first. But then, to pass it along and, and pay it forward now i find this whole concept really really intriguing because i even know a lot of people live in florida and in swampy areas let's say and move a lot nowadays people rent instead of buy and you don't know much about where you're moving into or renting from what the person before had and they do get caught up yes i acknowledge that many places i've been in have molds, but the testing is difficult when i jump from one year one year Retest, do a, you know, ERMI or something like that. It's expensive. And here yeah. you have this kind of, you know, this solution that is affordable. How did you get it from something that is expensive to make it become
0: affordable and still accurate? So we did a hard analysis on what were the problems with mold testing, right? Yeah. What, what is the primary problem? There's a lot of them. Number one is in the do-it-yourself side of things, just to take that out, most of the time you have to hire a professional. Yeah, uh, and and so that means that there's a huge cost structure associated with that, right? The you know you've got to put the human and the vehicle, and they've got to have advertising to get to they got to pay their rent and the electricity. Oh, you know, it's just a huge cost structure. So as a result, the the testing and the lab fees have to be marked up extraordinarily high for it to be sustainable. And then uh, there's also lots of problems within that model when it comes to conflicts of interest because. There is a, a great propensity in this industry for people who are taking samples to be doing it with an ulterior motive, you know, to gather data that can be used as a sales tool, as opposed to a tool for healing, as opposed to an investigative uh, tool. And so, as a result, it's used as leverage unwittingly, you know, to to the unwitting public, and then they're often forced into, you know, uh, into fear based decisions. There's also a, a heavy slant, we can talk more about this, and I would really like to talk more about this, that everyone's focused on mycotoxins. And mycotoxins are only part of the story. Mycotoxins are actually, as it turns out, a disproportionately smaller part of the story than most people think when it comes to mold and mold-related illness. We'll, we'll dig into that. But the the people who love to manipulate this, especially the ERMI, purveyors of ermy, they're, they're, they're always high. They're always high. And so it's a mold remediator's dream. Because you can't pass those. And so the more the more you fail, the more they work, the more they work, the more they get paid. It's a conflict of interest. So essentially, we started looking at, you know what what is out there? and And basically, that's why we created what we created because you looked at the DIY market and all I saw was junk science mm-hmm. uh, stuff that confirms the presence of mold, be a tape lift or a swab. By the way, mold is ubiquitous in our environment. So confirming the presence of mold doesn't do you much good. Uh, it's mold molds all over your skin. It's all over it's your take a deep breath right now. If in a healthy home, you will have breathed in hundreds of species potentially. So that is normal. And I would argue healthy. And the opposite is also true, by the way. If you breathe in and you only breathe in a small number of them, you're probably in an unhealthy building with a low biodiversity. Mm -hmm. It's very counterintuitive, right? So what we tried to do, first thing we had to do is get rid of the human. (laughs) To make testing affordable, you got to get rid of the human. And then also to make testing valid, you have to have the best lab possible, too. So we were fortunate enough to partner with MLab P&K, number one lab in the country, which got acquired recently by Eurofins, which is arguably the number one environmental microbiology lab in the world. And so that was a very powerful partnership. And then to use professional devices, actually, to actually not reinvent the wheel, right? So so to actually use what's already the standard of care, or the, or I should say the go-to a sampling method, which is aerosol cassettes or spore traps, which is uh, the most cost-effective way to, to quickly take a look at what's going on in your air. So if you want to have your house tested right now and you were to hire a professional, they would come over with an air sampling pump, well, lots of other tools and equipment. But when they're ready to take take air samples and do the testing, they'll typically bring out a tripod and an air sampling pump, which is an expensive calibrated device, a thousand bucks or so. And that will pull air through cassettes that are designed to capture the airborne particulate matter. And, and we focus on mold spores, but it captures pollen and household dust and and, and various other um, airborne, primarily bioaerosols. So in other words, biological uh, particulate. So in order for us to be able to get that kind of test, we had to have a device that could actually mimic that professional pump. And so that's one of the innovations that we brought to the table as we created one that's battery-operated pulls exactly the same flow rate as a professional pump, but it's a fraction of the cost. And so when people buy our kit, they can then keep the pump after they've tested the first time and then they can reuse it. And each time they they reuse it, the refills are $50 less per configuration. So it's a it's a it's a good value for them. So so in essence what we did was we took out inefficiencies, replaced some of the technology. And then the other piece of it is that in order to make the um the report not a bottleneck for us on the customer service side. We had to make it really easy to understand. We had to make a technical report really accessible to the consumer and not give them so much information, libraries of mold definitions and all the stuff that you see with a lot of these reports. Nobody needs to know all the different aspergillus and penicillium types and what they do. They don't need that. Uh, They can go on Google for that. Uh, If they want to know what's in their air, we tell them. Our report is a color coded interp- there's a color coded interpretation cover page green yellow orange or red depending upon what we find as well as the lab data but it's formatted the way I always wanted my lab reports to be formatted you know it's just you know it's it's easy on the eyes it's color coded and it's arranged so that you know the different spores and and types and whether they're water damage indicators or not and and then the third page is the final page and that includes next steps resources, free resources, low-cost resources, uh, links to the trade associations, the train qualified professionals, both on the inspection side and the remediation side. And what we have found is that out of, out of the uh, several thousand kits that we've sold, uh, we've had a grand total of two people that have called and said, can you explain my report? And it wasn't that they were they needed help, it's that they just wanted to know, they wanted to talk to a human about what to do next. So somehow or another, you know, we, we figured out how to do it. And the results have been great. It's really empowering when you read the reviews, you know yeah. when you when you see what people are, the kind of relief that this provides people because they can get their testing done without having to get permission from their husband or wife or from their boss or right. uh, and then they can keep the results to themselves or they can use it to leverage getting uh, you know the landlord to do something. there's real power in data. Uh, there's real power, empowerment in giving people the tools and knowledge they need to make better decisions. And so from from that perspective, it's been uh, it's been incredibly gratifying.
1: Yeah, no, it sounds like an amazing journey to get this in the hands of more people, which is so, so necessary, and and break down those barriers to entry for many of those. Now, you mentioned something there that I have to go back to, because I believe this is probably part of the myths, and I'd like you to expunge on what other myths there are. But mycotoxins are necessary, and they're not the only thing you should be Caring about, right? That That's kind of what you said. So go into that because that's going to blow some people's minds. Of, what, what the
0: hell are you talking about, man? Like, oh, it's all man. about the mycotoxins. That's all you test for. <laughs> yep, yep. I just gave a talk at the biohacking conference, Dave Asprey's biohacking conference. Yeah, and yeah. The title of it was More Than Mycotoxins. Yep. And so, you know, I, I unpacked that for about an hour. So I'll do a very short version of that. Thanks. But when mold is growing, it produces three things. This is a hypersimplification. It produces a lot of things. But in, in essence, you've got spores, which are the reproductive seeds, and these are typically airborne uh, when they're disturbed, and they can cause upper respiratory um, irritation, allergic reactions, these kinds of things. They also happen to carry with them, uh, the spores themselves, some degree of mycotoxins if it's a toxin-producing mold but spores by themselves are are a natural normal part of our environment and you're breathing them in every day and so this the spores are not to be feared in fact by the way fun fact um the kingdom fungi produces 50 megatons of spores every year uh, 50 megatons is equivalent to five hundred thousand blue whales and that's every year so so mold part of kingdom fungi, is the largest producer of biological particulate on the planet. And so you're not going to get away from that. 30% of the Earth's biomass is fungi. And so we live on a fungal planet, make no mistake. We are the guests here, not the other way around. And mold and fungi are the reason that everything works, quite frankly. And so we we need to embrace them, embrace these these critters instead of reject them. Um, And then you've got spores, you've got the... The microbial gases, then the musty odor, what, they call, what are known as microbial volatile organic compounds, MVOCs for short. Most people listening to this show are probably familiar with VOCs. Uh, these are generally regarded as man-made chemicals, but formaldehyde is a common one. But the most popular one is alcohol. And uh, many people like that for lots of different reasons. And so uh, that's, a, that's a very popular VOC. And it's also microbial VOC because, in fact, alcohol is made through the fermentation of microbes. And then you've also got mycotoxins. And mycotoxins are the the poisons that fungi use to fight with each other and other microbes. It is chemical warfare on a microscopic level. We get caught in the crosshairs. And because we are more genetically, more closely related to fungi than we are bacteria, we end up, but we're kind of on the winning side of that for the most part. So anyway, uh, so and by the way, the most common mycotoxins that most people are familiar with is penicillin. And so so there's a, this is a semantic discussion in many ways. How do you define a chemical by its use? So if it's a mycotoxin it kills the things you don't want and if it's an antibiotic it kills the things you do want, same chemical. So how you classify that is more, more a matter of a personal preference or or the or the target that you're looking for. So, so the bottom line is what's been happening with mycotoxins is that people focus on the mycotoxins, but most, the evidence is very clear that most mycotoxin exposure does not come from air. And I can tell you how I know that because when Alexander Fleming discovered mycotoxins, penicillin, when he discovered antibiotics, penicillium a spore had landed when he went out to lunch, he forgot to put the cover on the dish. He was cultivating streptococcus, strep throat, right? So he had a bacterial culture, and he left, and he was a notoriously sloppy scientist. so he left without the cover cover on top of the uh, the dish. He came back and he saw that there was a colony in the middle of the dish that had a little clear moat around it. and that clear moat was what he referred to as mold juice. that was his his <laughs> highly scientific very technical, <laughs> very technical, and he literally called it mold juice. And that mold juice was clearly. Keeping the bacteria at bay, killing it, uh, but also keeping it at bay now there's a misconception that if you 've got mycotoxins in your house in the dust in the corner of your of your uh, living room. That you're now, that it's radioactive, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to get to you. But the stuff has to become airborne. And it doesn't become airborne by its own because, in fact, these mycotoxins are, they ooze. They're more like an oily substance. And so they tend to, they do collect on the outside of dust and spores, which is to say the same thing in, in some ways because, you know, the, they all kind of hang out together. And if that becomes airborne, you can get about the amount of exposure that you would if it were on the outside of one of those cells or one of those particulates. But they're not flying around by themselves. And I can tell you how I know that's true, because if you look at the dish that Alexander Fleming had, if they were flying around, the whole dish would be clear. Instead, they ooze out because mold cares about one thing, competition on the surface it's growing on. Mold doesn't eat air. It eats the sheetrock or the paper on your sheetrock. It eats the dust that's on the surface. Of whatever it's growing on, and so it releases this very this substance which stays on the surface to provide a competitive advantage. It is not designed to be airborne. This is a factual. This is this is a grand misperception in the healthcare field, especially in the functional field. Honestly, uh, where if you've got mycotoxins or if you got a mycotoxigenic species, go forget about it. You know, leave with the shirts on your back. This is a dangerous philosophy, uh, and it's an inaccurate one. It's scientifically invalid. But the thing that's interesting is the actual the thing that's probably the underlying cause of most mold related illness is the thing that is the most ubiquitous. See, only mycotoxigenic species produce mycotoxins, but and only they produce them intermittently. So they only produce them generally when they're threatened or when they're having a they're they're threatened by competition or threatened by drying out. So lot, lots of times they'll produce them quickly when they're you know when they're starting to sort of like die off you know becoming dormant. So it's not a reliable way. It's kind of like the tiger versus the tail. The mycotoxins are like the tail, you know? You want to know the tiger. The tiger's dampness, okay? Mm. That's the enemy. Now, what happens when mold grows? The spore detects this, this combination lock, you know, the right temperature, the nutrition that it's looking for, or the food source, the oxygen has to be present because these are aerobic, by the way. This is how you know they don't grow in your gut. Most of these are highly are aerobic. Uh, so they, they're not anaerobic. They cannot colonized inside your gut, 99% of these microbes. And so uh, when that combination lock, you know, that combination kicks in, boom, that spore will then, like a seed will begin, will, will release a hyphae, which is like a feeler, and it will release enzymes. This brilliant little single-celled organism will release enzymes based upon this catalog of enzymes that it has to eat exactly what it wants. And while it does that, it digests outside of the cell. Uh, we digest inside, and produce gases, flatulence, and all that, which, by the way, are microbial gases. And uh, they're not human gases. Those are microbial gas. Those are microbial VOCs. And they, they do it on the outside. And so what you, it extracts the nutrition it wants, and then it releases mold burps. And that mold burp, if you will, is the musty smell. And that musty smell is a potpourri of industrial solvents for lack of, for, for, I mean, really, truly, if you look at them chemically, it's it's benzene is commonly found coming off of actively growing mold. This is a group one carcinogen, right? Alcohols, ketones, aldehydes, it's it, really, truly, I mean, if you, the industrial solvents uh, and these become airborne and, uh, and, and, this is where you'll see commonly with mold, with mold sufferers that they also tend to be chemically sensitive. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they'll become chemically sensitive. Why? Well, that's why. Because the body picks up that chemical. It's a predictive mechanism, right? I smell that. Oh, bad, bad news. Shut down, fight or flight, the whole inflammation cycle, that whole cascade kicks in because of a smell they picked up at the grocery store. But it's actually because of the chronic exposure to the musty smell in a building that they spent too much time in. And the evidence is pretty clear on this, and it's emerging rather rapidly, but my friend Joan Bennett at Rutgers University is doing fascinating work with fruit flies because of her own awakening, having a building that she owned down in New Orleans that got flooded during Hurricane Katrina, and she's a mycotoxin expert. Uh, She walked into the building with a respirator respirator on and got very sick, and she realized the only thing that was making it through the respirator was the musty smell. Mm. So she came back to the lab and began testing fruit flies. Uh, with the musty smell, with one component of the musty smell, and she found that they stopped flying to the light. They instead flew down. They stopped producing dopamine. Uh, they had there were special fruit flies. They fluoresce when they produce dopamine, so mm. pretty cool. What you can order online cool. these days. <laughs> uh, they also began re- uh, stopped reproducing, and then they also developed what she called parkinsonian-like symptoms. And then left left on uh, her subsequent studies showed that it causes mitochondrial damage and locomotor dysfunction. This is just one component within the musty smell. And so uh the the evidence is 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 compounding. Brown University did a study in 2008 and concluded that there was a direct correlation between mold and dampness indoors and, and depression.
1: Hmm.
0: And That's why I brought up my mother's uh, early demise is because she was also an alcoholic, but the question is what is you know what comes first the chicken or the egg? You know, if you're living in, if you're depressed and you're living in a damp building and then you're more depressed and you're doing more to self-medicate and then you're spending more time in the building, which is very common, anyone who's Listening to this, this a mold sufferer who's in a moldy building, probably spending a lot of time on Facebook, sitting in the middle of the thing that is making them sick, because they're sick, so they're staying where they are because they're sick, and they're getting sicker because they're staying where they are, right? And so this is a negative cycle; it's a vicious circle. And so the musty smell is, in fact, according to the emerging medical research, uh, the it first of all, it's the, all molds produce it, so when they're growing. So, so you don't have to find a toxicogenic species in your house; it doesn't matter if mold's growing in your house, it's producing these gases. And if it's producing these gases in very tight structures that we currently live in, you're breathing them. And by the way, I might remind everyone who's here, you breathe 13 to 15 times a minute. And if you do the math on that, 20,000 times a day. So look at every breath as a dose. Imagine taking 20,000 doses, even small doses of a toxic chemical. That can't end well, right? So this, this whole thing about mycotoxins, and even dust, quite frankly, uh, needs to be separated out. The main thing here is dampness in buildings is the enemy. The Mm -hmm. problem is not mold. The problem is dampness. Mold is a symptom. And actually, you could argue that mold signals, mold is actually telling you something's wrong with the building. You could Mm -hmm. actually argue there's a benevolence to it because it releases the smell. If it really wanted to hurt you, it would do it silently. It would do it without any indication whatsoever. Instead, it tells you. There's a musty. Okay, there's a moisture problem here. Now fix this. Now if you don't answer that, the same way if you don't answer inflammation in your body, it becomes chronic inflammation. That's its own disease. Same thing goes with the building. If you leave that by itself, it will continue to compound, and ultimately it becomes cancer in the building. Mm -hmm. And so, so this is the. I look at the building and the body as very. You know, there's There's a metaphor here. There's a symbiosis, if you will. So anyway, the mycotoxins. This is this is a major issue because it's it's got most of the medical community completely blinded. Yeah, it's it's a real wild way to look at it that your home is the living
1: organism or, or the organism you could say, and the living organism within it is the symptom. So that if you have the mold, that that's not it's ringing the bell as to something else is the true problem yes. to it, which yes, which yes. kind of shifts your whole perspective on mold problems. Remediation of just going after mold does not work. Damp does not is is really what you have to go after. So let's now go into that. Case of, okay, let's go with the one that you find mold, you get got molds, it goes right on you, you have the smell there and everything. What is someone's next step? Because, as I know, most remediation is about just cutting it out, spraying it with chemicals, airing it out for a little bit and leaving, saying you're remediated when, in truth, well, what was causing the damage? Exactly. So
0: remediation, the root word, is remedy. And so I, I love etymology, right? You, if you dig into words, they will, they're they so self-revealing. So to, what is what do we need to remedy here? Well, we need to remedy the water problem. So remediation always begins with fixing the water, mm-hmm. always. And if you don't, then don't bother, yep. really. Because 24 to 48 hours is how long you've got from the time something gets wet and it becomes moldy. So if you have a water damage event or a leak or any, any sort of excess dampness, including high humidity. 24 to 48 hours is the the zone in which you need to take action, according to the EPA. The industry standard, which is called the IICRC S520, IICRC is the organization, the S520 is the document. They state that at 72 hours, something that's gotten wet, excuse me, especially something that's porous and absorptive, so anything like carpet, carpet padding, uh, sheetrock, of course, is the number one mold food, uh, anything upholstered. These things at 72 hours of dampness, not properly dried, need to be treated as if they're moldy, whether they're moldy or not, whether they're visible, vis- visibly moldy or not. So fixing the water problem is first. And then you have to set up environmental controls around. So so you ask me, what, what's someone's first action? Find the water problem. Mm-hmm. And then determine from there, because the water problem seems the mold will tell you how to find the water. This is the thing about mold is that it, it, everyone thinks it's the enemy. The mold gives you all the clues you need. It gives you the musty smell, which is the alarm bell. And then if you track that back and you, you can find where the source of the moisture is and fix it, and there's a whole trail because you got growth. And then you need to uh, address that. Now, if that's beyond the scope of your experience and capabilities, that's when you involve a professional. Right. So, in other words, diagnosing the moisture problem, if that's beyond your scope and experience, then you need to bring in a professional, unfortunately. And that's where it's expensive. And that's where it's also difficult to find out. Let's find somebody who's qualified because the number one rule is no conflicts of interest. Right. Number two rule is no ERMI <laughs> because it, that's, it lends itself to conflicts of interest and also an endless rabbit hole of huge expenses. Anyone who's pushing that, by the way, really pushing that, had better uh, have some really good justification. By the way, I can share with you a link to an article we just wrote about called The Truth About ERMI, which yeah. was, uh, a collaboration between some of the brightest science minds that I know and humbly us. And so uh, I would love to to share that with you so that you can share that with your, with your audience because it's a, it's a real problem causes a lot of panic and fear that test. It really does people. It just, it's so much confusion and so much heartache. So figuring out the water problem is fixing that and then determining the extent of the, of the, the mold. And then the remediation, the the physical part of the remediation is removing the building materials that cannot be cleaned. And again, this is under under special control. So you'll establish, you know, almost like ET, right? You're going to tent off the the area, the work area. So the dust you create in that work area stays in that work area. You're going to isolate at HVAC, in other words, block your vents. You're going to ventilate the space with a special, what they call negative air pressure. So you're going to blow air out of the window or out of any uh, penetration you can to create a sort of a suction within that workspace so that anything you produce in the space stays in the space. And then you remove these building materials, carpet, carpet padding, sheetrock, insulation, ceiling tiles, anything upholstered and absorptive that was wet and stayed wet too long. And then there's a micro-fine cleaning. And that cleaning utilizes HEPA-filtered vacuum cleaners and damp wipes. Now, you'll notice that I didn't say anything about spraying, anything about fogging, anything about killing, because that is counter to actual remediation. In in the standard, uh, they specifically advocate against using chemicals unless there was concern about a bacterial issue. So in other words, if the source of water was sewage Mm -hmm. or river water or ocean water, which is loaded with nutrients, then you need to sanitize it. But they're not saying to kill the mold because you don't need to kill the mold. Killing the mold doesn't actually help. Actually, what you've just done, if you come in and start spraying stuff, is you've added a chemical that you can't get back out of the house. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas you can get the mold out, but you've added a chemical that you cannot remove. You're also, in many cases, using that chemical in lieu of cleaning because contractors like to do less work and get paid more money. So they like chemicals because that's less work, more money. Uh, And they're leaving behind dead mold. Well, the purpose of mold remediation is to reduce the fungal load to an acceptable level, which means you have to clean it out. You have to remove it. Uh, Mold remediation is about cleaning and removal. It's not about killing. And also, when you use chemicals to, to, to kill mold, as with bacteria, as you're seeing in hospitals with resistant organisms like MRSA and C. diff and stuff like that, When you're widespread killing stuff, what happens is you leave behind the really strong stuff. And this is called competitive release, where you kill off all the would-be competitors that would would normally keep that stuff in check in in a a biodiverse environment where you've got lots of different microbes competing for the resources that are there. Instead, you kill them all off and you leave the dead mold behind. And the really tough ones come out and eat the dead mold. Dead mold loves to eat mold. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the really tough one comes out and eats the rest of the stuff. And by the way, if you've used bleach, it looks clean. But it's not. And by the way, if you use bleach, it's really funny. The bleach evaporates leaving behind what? Water, right? So uh, bleach is primarily water, 97% water. And so you get this this hallucination that you've cleaned because it smells clean and because it looks clean, but you're actually leaving behind dead mold and water, <laughs> You just added water to a water problem. And so all that stuff is very counterintuitive. And it and it, and it runs right in the face of all the wives' tales and and and, uh, uh, and the stuff that we, we've we considered to be sort of fact. A bucket of bleach and some paint and you know, you're good to go. Not true. It's difficult for the consumer because there's not a lot they can do on their own unless the problem is very small, which again goes back to acting quickly. Because at 24 to 48 hours, if something gets wet, you can rip it out yourself as long as there's not a pre-existing mold problem there. And you can dry it out. But at 72 hours, and by the way, insurance will cover most water damage. Insurance, if you have a water damage issue, most insurance, and even if you've got a landlord, that will be covered. If you act quickly, that's like free or cheap. At the 72 hour mark, mold remediators have to come in. These guys come in in moon suits. They've got different insurance. They've got different trucks. They've got different equipment. They've got different expenses. And your cost just went 10x. And by the way, insurance doesn't cover it. That's the big kicker, right? Now it's a cash pay. So you have three days of opportunity to take advantage of insurance and a DIY solution. At the 72-hour mark, you are now in cash land and you are now in professional land and the insurance companies will turn their back on you. And in fact, if you, if you file a claim, they'll drop you on, on renewal if you do it twice. So it's a real problem. So this is my message, right? If you see, it, if you see something, smell something, or feel something, do something and do it quickly. Because you have two to three days maximum.
1: Yeah. The unfortunate part is I feel like most people don't even realize the problem until it's very downstream, meaning it's weeks, months, years. You know, And that that becomes problematic because you don't even know where the source is. So let's say it's not from a flood or anything, maybe leaky pipe somewhere, right? You have sheetrock that's dampening, mold's there, then you start to get the scent. You may not even see where it is yet because the wetness is on the other side of the wall. And yet you still have that. So when you have something like that, what would be the advice there? Because of course, in a flood, you know, it, you see the water, you know, the damage, you start to do dampening. You could see even, you know, on the little readouts where it's damper in the sheet rocker here and there. But if you didn't have that, if you got your test and it came back positive and you don't even know where, you know, what, what do you advise there? Because some homes are very large and could be
0: just one little area that you're just not able to see. Yeah, and, and this is this is the hardest part about this, especially from the perspective of what we offer now as a DIY testing solution, is that oftentimes the next best step is to engage a professional, and yep. finding a qualified professional, by the way, and it's a big expense, is very difficult. Um, we're working on a on an exhaustive piece on how to select a qualified inspector. So we talked about the building as a body as a metaphor, or building as an organism. Let me let me kick that around for a second because I think you'll appreciate this. So I look at the building as an exoskin or an exoskeleton, okay? As an extension of your immune system. You know, we're a lot like hermit crabs. We wouldn't do too well without our shell, you know? And there's the four basic human needs, air, water, food, shelter, Food, you know, shelter. We can live with that for a while, but not too long depending on the climate. And then you got, you know, uh, food, which you need, you can't go for much more than a few weeks. And then Water a few days and then air a few minutes, and yet we think about air last, which is amazing to me. You know, it's typical of humans that we, we have these <laughs> fascinating cognitive blocks or cognitive blind spots. So within this this metaphor of the building as a body, I look at the system of systems that we have here that are life sustaining. You know, the building's got a respiratory system, and you could argue that the plumbing is circulatory, and the the electrical system is a nervous system. And then where's the immune system? Where are the immune system? You could even argue that we're the mitochondria within the building, you know, that we're the, we're the energy cell. We're making sure everything works and, you know, and that's what's ironic about that musty smell doing mitochondrial damage, right? <laughs> is that the musty smell causes, right? Yeah. Uh, so it plays all the way through. And again, when when a building develops aches and pains, the first thing usually manifests is a moisture problem and ma- moisture problems manifest first as a mold problem. And then the mold problem sends you a signal, which is the building's form of pain. And then that that pain molecule or molecules and then uh, whether you respond to that or not determines how how much of a problem this pain becomes, if this becomes its own disease. So when, when you have a, a problem with a building, that, you know, you want to get some testing done. You could look at this as, as like a DIY test. You do some testing. Done. If you had a problem, if you decided to, to use one of these DIY tests for your own body, and let's say it was cholesterol, you want to do a cholesterol test. If you had high cholesterol readings, you wouldn't immediately schedule heart surgery. You know, you wouldn't say, I got to get a stent. You know, you wouldn't immediately schedule an intervention. You would schedule an appointment with your doctor or with a specialist who would then say, let's take a closer look, see what's going on in your body, see if there's some family history we need to be aware of, see if there's maybe some other variables. Maybe you just ate a cheeseburger and and, a, and french fries and a, and a milkshake before you, came, before you took that test. Maybe you did. So the same logic should be used with a DIY building test, right? We test buildings and we test bodies. And and I look at the DIY test a lot like that, that DIY cholesterol test. It's not truly actionable. No single test is actionable by itself. You need the actual context of what's going on in the body or the building in order for you to build a next step, right? And so you would go to a doctor. In other words, you'd, you'd hire a professional inspector, which is like a building doctor. You get a physical of the building, you know? Okay. And then that develop the byproduct of that physical of the building is a scope of work, which is like a referral to a remediation contractor or a referral to a surgeon, where it's a team approach. You don't skip over from a DIY cholesterol test to a stent. You know, you don't skip over from a DIY test. To remediation because there are there are controls that are put in place, but if you follow that process well, and it's not it's not obligatory except for in a few states. There's a couple states where there's laws that state that you can't have an inspector and a remediator be the same guy, and that you have to have an inspector do an inspection and develop a scope of work. Uh, and that scope of work is you know the, the, the New York State is one of them. Uh, Texas is another. You know there's a handful of states that have regulations around this, and they're poorly they're poorly executed, quite frankly. But they at least do keep us a, a Chinese wall between the inspectors and the remediators. So, it is important to be able to find a qualified inspector in your area. Now, here's the key you need to have somebody who does this full time. This is all they do. They don't do anything else. They're not a home inspector, by the way. Home inspectors are not qualified to do this. They need to be an environmental consultant with specialized experience in doing sick building diagnosis. They do not have a remediation uh, business on the side, nor does their brother or their cousin or their uncle. Uh, And if they do, they disclose it to you, and there's no financial relationships between them. And this is, uh, at this point, completely, you know, it's something that they have to disclose. Voluntarily, yeah, it's an season. honor fact, system. It's yeah. an honor system, and that's very difficult, right? And then you want to make sure that they're not also using tools like Ermi, which are slanted towards against the consumer. They're slanted towards driving people towards huge remediation costs. You also want to watch out for people that are that are charging huge sums for inspections. Some people are getting away with six or eight thousand dollars, calling them medical mold inspections. You also want to stay away from the guy who's doing it for two hundred fifty bucks. You know, it's kind of a common sense thing. You don't want the highest, and you don't want the lowest. And, you know, what's really helpful is you find people that are working that have a, a good number of references, consumers who have really been helped, you know, people who who have been through it. You want real life stories. And you want to talk to these people. And by the way, I also advocate the use of mold sniffing dogs. I really do. They, they are so powerful. If you can find an inspector in your area that is not conflicted, that has real experience in this. I'm not talking about a guy who just got a dog yesterday because they're even more dangerous than a human by himself. But someone who's got some experience in this, and they're hard to find, quite frankly, they are. But that's the path that you need to go on, and that's it's unfortunate. There is no, there is no silver bullet. There is no, you know, solution in a box, so to speak. It is caveat emptor to a large degree. You know,
1: the whole thing is that we're talking about health. We're talking about you know the quality of life and everything. So you're you're gonna want to go the extra mile on this. You're not going to want to skimp out or just jump into a quick solution that doesn't sound very well. You want to do your research. You want to feel good about it. Just like I always say, when you choose a doctor, go around, you know, really understand what you're going to ask them, how they relate to you and how you feel about it, and see among a number of doctors. And don't put cost as the only thing, but of course, keep that in your range, all these things. So it's a big decision, as always. And it should be because, again, it's about your health. You know, I want to talk. A little bit beyond mold, because you talk about indoor air quality. You're an indoor air quality crusader. I feel like we're in this kind of spot where we've built our homes to be of terrible indoor air quality, meaning we've sealed them in, right, to make them very energy efficient, but that means nothing gets out, and then we put a bunch of just terrible ingredients, whether it's even from scented candles, Febreze, our carpet is, you know, fire retardants and you know, VOCs, as you said before, they're, they're just, it's just basically we're sitting in a, a chemical stew that's in our air and we're breathing it. And then we don't even open windows anymore, which I find strange. You know, I know new apartments that don't even have a window that you can open to get fresh air. And they just say they, they filter it. You know, with all of that said, what does one need to look out for? Number one, I would say part of that question is there's certain things that you don't want to introduce into your environment, your home? And number two, how can we best filter those things that obviously we're not going to get away from everything?
0: Yeah, so you, you hit on a very important point. So mold is only one piece of, of the whole thing, right? If you were to look at air, it looks a lot like um, weather, right? You got plumes of chemicals and particles and they are, you know, if, if you could see microscopically, you'd be amazed that we're in like more like, more like a stew, than we are in like this clear liquid that's, you know, this clear fluid, I should say. You know, in fact, there's a, the statistics around this are fascinating and 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 I'll get into the filtration in a minute, but, you know, the, from 1965 until 2014, respiratory illness is up 165% in the United States. And also uh, during that same period, roughly the same period, death related to respiratory illness is up 30%. Now, this is during a time when smoking has gone down precipitously by some measures about 80%. And so you think, well, geez, if we got rid of smoking, which is the the big cause of lung cancer and respiratory illness then why are the numbers going up so high? And, uh, you know, you can quickly point, if you just do a little bit of a rewind, you'll see that we closed up our buildings really tight for energy efficiency in the 70s, right? During the, the, uh, the fuel crisis. We also started building out of essentially petrochemicals and, and, and very cheap, quick building materials in order to meet the demands of the baby boomers. And then, um, you know, the buildings now, when they get wet, they, the water gets into the walls. It used to be we'd build out of stone, plaster, uh, old growth timber, things like that concrete and when water got in the walls it, it went away so it dry out you know, the wind would whistle, wind would blow and it would whistle and it would dry out now stuff gets in and it stays in we build up we build paper mache and plastic bags you know it's really crazy and and the materials are you know doing a lot of imports from obviously from overseas and so in order to make those things quick quickly and cheaply they they're made with solvents and and, and adhesives and things that have to dry quickly which means if they dry those chemicals are becoming airborne you know things don't dry and then go nowhere it comes out and goes into the air. And so, but we lock ourselves in these boxes. And and the new house smell is one of those funny things. A new car smell is very alluring. It's a it's a it's a again, a very counterintuitive thing. People think of this is like the badge like they they won, they've arrived. And when I walk into a house like that, I smell cancer, you know, and, and that's the reality of it. And I used to be allured by that. I remember moving into my first apartment. It was freshly painted. I thought, oh my God, this is great. It's fresh, it's new, it's clean. And I look back at that now and I'm like, I wouldn't let my kids spend 10 minutes in there. Right. And I went and was like, Cool, let's move in. So, the first step to detoxing, and again, buildings and bodies, detox the body, detox the the building. First step to detoxing is stop toxing. So, stop bringing that stuff in the building. That means if you're going to paint, use no VOC paints. If you're going to get carpet or or have any installations at all, go to greenguard.org. It's a resource where where builders can find low emission materials, low and no emission materials. And before you buy even so much as a, a tube of caulk, you can go there and verify that what you're getting actually is low or no emissions. Very important. Also, no chemicals. You don't need to kill anything. You don't need to use any antimicrobials. By the way, even with COVID, the study that they did on COVID, uh, where they 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 used a surrogate virus and they spread it out on on uh, hard surfaces and they used an anti wide spectrum antimicrobial and also hot water and they same exact cleaning mechanism on both sides and they couldn't tell the difference between the outcomes. There was no difference. So you don't need to kill, stop the killing. So that's number two. And if you stop the killing and recognize that we need to cooperate with our environment and that there's a there's direct correlation between a high biodiversity, lots of microbes in your building, okay? And there's a great book called Never Home Alone by Rob Dunn. Anyone who's interested in this should read Rob Dunn's fascinating and hilarious and eye-opening book. He's a riot and you'll be shocked and surprised by what's in your house, but also you'll stop wanting to kill stuff. So there's a direct correlation between a high biodiversity and low incidence of asthma, allergies, and autoimmune disease. The data is very strong. And also a very uh, low biodiversity, very high degree or high incidence of asthma, allergies, and autoimmune disease. So we need these microbes, right? And so what we don't need is all these chemicals. So... So the first thing you want to do is stop getting, stop getting these chemicals in the house and stop stop trying to kill everything. And don't use air fresheners. These are bad news. Don't use essential oils, except for very occasionally as a way to... It, because by the way, those are VOCs too. And oftentimes they can cause uh, problems in people that are sensitive and they may not even know it. A lot of people rely on those. They erring, erringly think that they're going to do something for mold and they don't. This is a wife's tale. You know, there are applications for that they are outside of my area of expertise, but I, as a general rule, you know, using anything to freshen air actually is not freshening the air. If you want to freshen air, open your windows, okay? <laughs> that's fresh air, presuming that your outside air is, is, is acceptable. And that's the other thing is that we don't open our windows enough. You know, The word human comes from humus, which means earth, soil. In fact, most of the microbes that are very friendly that are in our gut are from soil, right? And so we are from soil, and theoretically, we go back to the soil. Uh, but we've disconnected ourselves such that we even bury ourselves in boxes so the soil can't get in, right? So we are, we are so disconnected from the earth that we are now wondering why the earth is now a threat to us. Mold, the most ubiquitous biological particulates in the world, are now a threat to us because we've been so dis- distanced from them. So I always say use a lot of HEPA filters. Use HEPA vacuums, but not to remove the particles that are produced by biological materials. You want to use those to remove the man-made stuff. You're building a shedding paint particles and the, the polyurethane flooring that you're walking across. Why do you have to refinish your floor? Because those particles are coming off. They're going into the dust. You want to worry about your dust? we worry about that stuff. That's a concentrated amount of chemicals that your babies and your puppies and your kittens are licking, it's called incidental ingestion. And by some measures, we take in about a hundred milligrams a day of these kinds of chemicals via dust, especially, like I said, babies and puppies and, and kittens and the people who we really care and love for the most. So we want to clean that stuff up, but not to get rid of all the particles, not to sterilize the air. We want to get rid of that stuff because of the chemicals more so than anything else. And also, the, the if you want to uh, filter out VOCs, you have to use filters that have a lot of carbon in them. And most of the filters are not; HEPA filters are are for particles only. Mm-hmm. So you need uh, activated carbon. And most filters, even with activated carbon, have very little. They have a thin layer of it. Uh, there are a few units out there. The IQ Air makes uh, probably the best VOC filters out there. Uh, the Health Pro Plus. And then in some cases where you have a VOC problem in the house, you sometimes need to install dilutive mechanisms. So in other words, where you'd actually have like an energy recovery ventilator or a heat recovery ventilator, which actually brings fresh air from outside and then expels stale air and transfers the heat. So using an, a heat exchanger, those are very effective in buildings where there's a lot of VOCs. But the bottom line is that that we are now facing, uh, I, I would argue, a, a real threat with our health. Mold is always what people call us about. But I actually really do think that the, uh, the, the predominant cause of most uh, chronic illness is poor air quality, and food follows a very close second. Mm-hmm. Uh, and VOCs are the primary violator in my yeah. experience. This is what the data is showing, especially as we spend more time indoors, especially as we stay in one building in particular. Twenty thousand doses of just one building's poison, right. not just multiple buildings. Right.
1: That was the wild part of the pandemic, where lockdowns, where suddenly you were stuck inside your house for much longer than you've ever been. You weren't outside at all, and you were stuck in a house most likely that wasn't doing you any favors because of what's going on in the air and people don't know this, and like you said, it's air quality, it's food. people like to you know just stick on food all the time. What are you eating? How are you eating? How clean is it? this that everything but don't ever discuss air quality the thing you breathe like you said twenty thousand times every single day over and over, and that's where you know the discussion needs to go to and I'm really having, happy we're having this discussion. Now, there is something I got to ask you because a lot of our patients are, and people that listen to this are dealing with chronic diseases. And something that you've dealt with that a large portion of our population deals with is Lyme disease. And somehow Lyme and mold go hand in hand. You see it over and over. Patients sometimes get mold diagnosis, get Lyme diagnosis, get, you know, it's a back and forth and you're treating one or the other. Shoemaker protocol, and then you're going on high doses of antibiotics and you just go in circles and get worse oftentimes. What is it about that connection that you find that you actually do have mold
0: patients, Lyme patients, Lyme patients, mold patients? It is to some degree a mystery. It's clear that biotoxins are the issue and the inability for the body to naturally process them and detoxify naturally. And that seems to be the Venn diagram. That's largely where so you know Schumacher, I've got a lot of issues with Schumacher. And he and I have had many public debates about a lot of things. But what he did act what he did do well was that, was he honed in on that, was that it's biotoxin related. What he did not do well was say there's a one size fits all approach, because that's not true. There's that's never been true in medicine. It's not true in almost anything. And so he's got a very didactic approach with that kind of stuff. So that's where, you know, the beginning and the end. The other thing he actually, by the way, also said recently, which I really agree with, is actinomyces, which are a kind of um, bacteria, rod shaped bacteria that grows alongside of mold and water damaged buildings, but isn't often tested for. Uh, and all, also, is a producer of major, uh, major chemical producer. In fact, two thirds of the antibiotics that we produce in our in the world are produced from actinomycetes, not from mold. So this is this is a blind spot also in the testing protocols that are that are commonplace. And so well, we're actually working on a DNA based test to knock ERMI out of the box. It looks at all known microbes, uh, including actinomycetes, uh, for the same cost as an ermE, which looks for thirty six. So orders of magnitude, and uh, not even it's logarithmic. Uh, it's just yeah. way well, yeah. So. The Lyme thing and the mold thing tends to be, I think, the biotoxin overlap. What's also fascinating is that you know you end up with chronic fatigue, the fibromyalgia, all of these other sort of nebulous illnesses that fall. What I see, and Lyme is, is different because Lyme is clearly an infection, these other diseases. What I see the mold does, or even poor air quality does, is it brings out the latent uh, symptoms that are already there. In other words, the latent diseases that you may already have under the, under the uh, surface. And it happened to me, right? So all that stuff came up, and then as soon as I got the environment under control, and I went on a no sugar, no grains diet, by the way, because a lot of mo- most mycotoxin exposure is food food based, and so people don't want to hear about that. You talk about don't talk about religion, politics, or my food, <laughs> yeah. right? Like those. Are- <laughs> That's that's, don't tell me I gotta change my
1: diet because especially when it's the coffee, right? That that is like (laughs) totally off. You know, don't
0: ever tell me not to drink my coffee. (laughs) Or my carbs. Don't get off, don't tell me I gotta drop my carbs because what am I gonna do? It's the only thing I've got in this world is I got my well, my my booze, my coffee, and my carbs. That's it, right? Like don't don't tell me I can't have my wine, you know. (laughs) And so you, you what I what I see happen consistently is that. This is the, the problem that most people face. And I also think that a lot of times with Lyme, what happens is Lyme people end up spending a lot of time indoors. Mm-hmm. If they've got a mold or moisture problem, they're hyperexposed. And so, you know, the, the, this comes down to get out of the house. This comes down to 20,000 doses a day. What are you dosing? Are you dosing 20,000 20, sips of? outdoor, highly biodiverse air with, you know, lots and lots of exposure to a wide variety of microbes uh, where you're getting maybe a little bit of musty smell here, these microbial gases here and there, because that's the way a forest smells, but you're not literally inhaling it constantly as if you're living over a compost heap, right? This is the difference, right? I mean, think about mold growth as compost. You are living in a compost bin if you just continue to let it go, and you're inhaling that, how is that going to end well, right? Your immune system is going to say, hey, man, I'm going to shut down for a little while here. My sinuses are going to close, right? Sinusitis. (laughs) My lungs are going to close, asthma, right? Everything goes, this is the body protecting itself. So I think that a lot of what we see when, when it comes to the exacerbation of illnesses is that mold tends to make people fatigued. And they tend to not leave the house. And then that just amplifies everything. And Lyme is no exception. People are bedridden. Um, And if they don't have their air quality straight in their home. And by the way, a lot of times these people are also met. They've they've lost their a lot of their decision-making. They're not maintaining the building well, right? There's a socioeconomic component to this. There's a psychiatric component to this. In fact, I'm working with a psychiatric clinic that has like 400 new patients a month, and they're finding inflammation in every single intake. And so they believe that mold or air quality is is an underlying cause in many of these psychiatric cases, such that some of these doctors I'm talking to in that world are now referring to depression as as an inflammatory disease.
1: Hmm.
0: Rightfully so. Fascinating stuff. And and what's what's gratifying is that it's emerging. The conversations we're having here today are the conversations that need to be had At scale, right? It should be out there. This is the one thing, you know, that all people do, right? We all breathe air. We all live in buildings. You know? And so, like, this is like the basics. This is foundational. This is table stakes. You're born into this planet. You should, you should be able to understand how to navigate living in buildings and breathing air. Yeah. And then what it takes to optimize that. And so that's the mission that we're on. Yeah, no, this
1: conversation, and I hope this is doing it for others, really change your perspective. You know, your home is an extension of you in some ways. As the home, so the body, as above, so below sort of thing goes, goes hand in hand here. That's and right. we seem to hyper focus singularly on the body, you know, as if it doesn't take things in and give things off itself, just as the house will give off VOC, this and that. And then at the end of the day, also you, you make this great case for, you know you're you're going to take these 20,000 or so breaths why not take some in the greatest type of environment which is outdoors reconnect with nature yes optimize your home no doubt about it but still know that nature is the ultimate healer in all mm. of this and nature is mycotoxins mold all of this so let's not just demonize that and say that's your problem that's right so it really does shift the perspective on everything and i i think this has been a really really enlightening one As far as just understanding that you do have power to do things about things, you just got to do them right. Whether it's the testing, whether it's how you address it, the dampness versus the mold, you know, kind of which one and address all these things. Is there anything you could leave us with as far as, you know, people who are concerned about mold, you know, any tips or advice uh, that you could leave with people so that we feel a little bit more confident uh, addressing what is bound to be a growing issue?
0: Well, I think the first thing that I like to encourage people to do is is trust your intuition. So mm-hmm. use your senses. You know, you're the best mold detector there is. You know, people tend to say that they may not see it; uh, they can often smell it. But more often than not, if they're willing to to trust themselves, they can feel it. You know, you walk into a building and it's not right, whether it be a hotel that you're staying because everyone's had the, most people have had the experience of walking into a vacation home or a hotel and going, ooh, you know. You know, those will often be restless nights, difficult to sleep because you'll cause sleep disturbances. And But more than that, right? You're just getting 20,000 doses again of, of of a chemical potpourri. So you need to trust your intuition. But in addition to that, get the facts, right? So in other words, trust your intuition and then use data to support the next steps. That's why we encourage people to test, don't guess, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it be the air or their body, don't just assume... In fact, assume nothing. You know, greet this with humility and an open mind, and get the get the facts, and then be judicious. Just, just treat mold inspectors the same way you treat finding a mold professional, the same way you treat finding a physician. In fact, in many cases, the, your mold inspector will have a greater impact on your health than the physician that you're uh, than you're working with. So take the time to interview and really follow, again, your intuition on that stuff, because your gut is going to tell you a lot more than you think. And then, you know, be patient and recognize this is a long road in some cases, you know, properly done a mold remediation project will take a month between the selection of the the, the inspector and the testing and the scope of work development and the finding the contractors and then doing the project and getting the testing done. It's a long process. And then lastly, be vigilant in your uh, prevention. Spend the money and the time to maintain the building from the outside in so that moisture does not become a problem again, and make that investment not just in your building, but in your health. I look at the house and the and the, the microbiomes that we, the building, and then us. These are what what some people call nesting ecologies, right? Like a matryoshka doll is above, so below. And so, so we are all part of a unified whole, you know? That's the reality. You can't separate this out, and we are part of nature, whether you like it or not. And um, so I say, embrace it. And at the end of the day, you know, the quality of the air you breathe is the quality of your life. And it's a very low investment relative to food and all these other things that you. Uh, that the cost associated with improving your air quality. It pays dividends, huge dividends, huge ROI. Yep. And it can improve, improve the quality of your life and the, the longevity of you and your family. And your failure to do that can cause early, disease and early demise. It's, it, and by the way, there's, no, there's only air and unhealthy air. There's no neutral. Yep. It's either life-giving or disease-causing. That's how binary it is. There is no neutral. So strive to make your air quality as good as you can because, and as clean as you can and then get outside. Amazing stuff.
1: Thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate this conversation. I know it's probably opened some uh,
0: eyes here. Where can people learn more about you and the company? Sure. So we created a welcome page for your listeners specifically at gotmold.com/inomed. That's i n n o m e d. On that page, we uh, have a couple of uh, a couple of things there. One of them is an ebook that we produced. It's uh, about forty six page. Pages of uh, FAQs and, you know, common common uh, myths and misconceptions, some of the stuff we addressed here today, uh, as well as checklists. Basically, it's it's a way for you to do an inspection of your own home. And so people give us a lot of great feedback about that. There's also a uh, a link to the website, uh, to the test kits, where there's a 10% discount offer also for your audience. And uh, just quickly, verbally, it's Inomed10, in case anyone's interested, I-N-N-O-M-E-D-10, which is a 10% discount. I am, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I see every message that comes in uh, from the website. So if anybody has any questions about this, about mold, about air quality, best thing to do is just go to the homepage and drop an inquiry there in the in the in the contact us section. And if you address it to me, there's a few Jasons here, actually, believe it or not, but they I, I see them all. Um, so I'm more than willing to to answer any uh, questions anybody has there too. Awesome, amazing stuff. Thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate it. Thank
1: you for having me. As you've heard today, it's always inspiring to see people like Jason who have turned a health setback into a successful business that's now paying it forward and helping others. So check out gotmold.com and until next time, continue writing your own healing story.